remember we're looking at beliefs that make Christianity hard to embrace or grasp. And basically, on TCU's campus and in our culture at large, there is, a, uh, there is an existential, as it were, a gut feeling, a heart problem for many, many people with the idea of hell. And it goes something like this. Tell me if you've heard something like this before. Ryan, I just don't know how to reconcile the idea of a God of love and hell. I don't know how to put the two together and to make sense of them. Because, most folks would reason, a loving God wouldn't either, depending on your views of it, send people to hell. He wouldn't uh, punish them. And that seems very inconsistent with the God of, uh, the God, a God of love. So there it is in short. I mean, there might be some variation on that, but that's basically what we want to look at tonight is that problem. And here's what I actually think we're going to find out. I think we're going to look, as we look at this text, we're going to look less about like what hell is, um, if it's real or not. We're not, we're not looking at that. I want to show you actually how at the end, how dare say this, that if you're a Christian, um, the doctrine of hell actually makes the gospel incredibly beautiful. That seems like an absolutely absurd statement to make. But I do think it's true, and I do think we're gonna, and, I, and, I, and I hope we'll get there. So that's kind of where we're going. So uh, some of you might have real objections and problems with this. I would imagine in a group this size that you would. But I want to take a look at uh, take a look at this. I can remember when I was a senior at the University of Tennessee. Uh, at the, if you'd have walked through the heart of campus, there would have been a uh, there would have been a library there called Hodges Library, and it was massive. But there was always somebody every spring standing on the steps in all black most of the time, standing on some podium or steps like I'd mentioned, just basically telling people in the name of Jesus that they were going to hell. He would find some girl and he would say, you know, he would call her a slut, he'd call her a whore because of the way that she was dressed. Um, He would find some guy that he kind of had a hobby horse on, you know, call them uh, a drunk or something like this and basically level a very harsh judgment on them. Now, some of you, when uh, I'll say it like this too, um, some of you experience any conversation from a religious person in that context. Does that make sense? Like to bring up the word hell, like those images show up. Perhaps you were with that girl on that campus. You were that guy in some way or another. And I just. I just want to tell you this, but that's not what I'm going to do tonight, okay? And I also want to say something else. That if you look at Scripture, Jesus never speaks that way when He's speaking about hell. That ought to just free us for a second. That Jesus' pathos, the way that He speaks about hell is very gently, it's very kindly because He knows 
deep down, it's a very sensitive and hard subject. Okay? So it's like he's tender. He's like a big mama bear, you know, that's protecting his cubs because it's very sensitive. And I, I just want you to know that it's not that Jesus is soft, but he is he's sensitive when he speaks about the subject. So we want to take a look at that. And I, and I want to say basically tonight, you can find it there in your bulletin, that I think hell is going to show us three important things. First of all, what it reveals about us. Secondly, why it disturbs us. And then lastly, how it can actually comfort us. Before we do that, I need to say one thing and I'm going to pray. Is that I need to give mad props to three people in particular for helping me on this. A guy by the name of D.A. Carson, a dear friend of mine named Zach S. Wine, and then a fellow pastor, uh, his name is Tim Keller. Both, all three of these men have helped me tremendously in, uh, in thinking about this, and a lot of the stuff that I'm using tonight belongs to them. So let's pray. God, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes to your word and that you would, by your spirit, uh, make these things clear to us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Look with me at the text there in verse 19. Let's set it up. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, at his property, there laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who destined to be, who desired rather to be fed with what fell from that rich man's table. So here's sort of the picture. There's a rich man who is living the posh life. He has a lot at his goods. I mean, a lot at his disposal. At his disposal. And then there is a poor man who literally sits at the edge of this man's property, whose sores have gotten so bad that the dogs come and clean them for him. That's what this text is saying. Both men die. Okay, this is a story, so it would be a parable that both men die, and their their lots are reversed. The rich man ends up, as it says here, in torment, in hell. And the poor man, Lazarus, who has this name, which will be huge as we come back, um, ends up by Abraham's side, or his bosom, is what one translation would say it, in heaven. So, death has reversed things. Now, this parable is trying to teach us a couple of different things. So, I'm not going to go into all of them, but I want to look at this. If you'll notice, Lazarus is the poor man. And most commentators point this out, that it's the poor man who has the name, but the rich man does not. And nowhere out throughout the rest of this parable is that man actually named. That's very, very important for this parable. Here's why. Because what does a name name do? A name is your identity. A name is what gives you... Uh, it, it's, what, it's what tells us what's at your core. And what it, most commentators actually say about this is that this man has nothing now. He is not named. There is nothing that belongs to him because at the entirety of his life, before he has t- died, he has built his whole existence, his whole life, His whole sense of being and meaning and worth has been on his riches. And now, in hell, they are evaporated from him. And so he's left nameless. 
In other words, what does hell reveal about us? Here's what the doctrine of hell will always do. It will always expose who you are at your core. 100% of the time. Because this does not mean that you are going to hell. But what it means is, is that no matter what, the doctrine itself, hell itself, will absolutely cause you to look into your heart, look into your very being of beings, and ask this question, who am I? What are the things that I'm looking to in life that actually give my life meaning and ultimate value? Now, as Tim Keller points out, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has written a book called Sickness Unto Death. And this is, very, this is wonderful. This is what he says in this book. That sin isn't primarily the bad things that we do. In other words, it's not primarily trying to avoid bad moral acts and be good moral people. Because, in other words, if you look at the Pharisees and the Scriptures, they were incredibly moral, neat, and clean people. But they were absolutely far off from God. What Kierkegaard is saying is is that therefore what sin must be at its foundational heart is building or trying to find your sense of self-worth, your identity on something other than God. And that's what's happening right here in this text. It is saying that you ultimately are building in some shape, way, form, or fashion your life on something other than Jesus. Secondly, not my second main point, but secondly underneath this first point, it is trying to highlight for you something incredibly important if you grew up in the church. Here it is. If you all have grown up somewhere in and around the church, you may have heard something like this. You need to become a Christian. Because without becoming a Christian, you're going to go to hell. And so you were probably six years old or something, and you had to live in Jesus scared out of you. And you thought, here's what I need to do. I better become a Christian because I don't want to end up in hell. And I want to say something that might be a little shocking for you. But the primary definition of what it means to be a Christian is not that you're trying to avoid hell. Let me say that another let me say it again. The primary definition of what it means to be a Christian is not that you are trying to avoid hell. The primary definition of what it means to be a Christian is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, I'm trying to say this to you. That if you became a Christian because you wanted fire insurance, do you see what I mean by that? I don't want to go there. So I, what you have done in essence has said that the most important thing for me is, is not God, but that I don't end up in hell. And what the Scriptures teach over and over again 
is that that in and of itself is no way, that's actually your finest ticket, as it were, into hell. And you go, wait a second here, Ryan, what are you talking about? Because I thought I was like, chill out, here's what I'm trying to say. If you are somebody that is saying, I don't want to go to hell, so therefore I'm going to become a Christian. What is your ultimate end? What is the main thing that you are really after? It's what? To keep your booty out of hell. Right? And what Christianity is, is saying that finding Christ, that finding God and loving Him is far more important and and invaluable than keeping your butt out of hell. Now, I know that seems like I'm splitting hairs, but it's vitally important for you to understand what's at the heart of Christianity. And most of us, myself included, have been sold a bill of goods that has said the most important thing is just trying to not end up in hell. And what the Scriptures say over and over again is the most important thing is loving Jesus. And loving Him for what He has done for us. Does that make sense? It's a huge, huge important thing that I want you to know. And that gets exposed as we continue to take a look at this. Secondly, why does the doctrine of hell disturb us? Well, it's probably the chunk of the main sort of thesis for the evening. It's because we don't like the concept of a God who actually punishes sin. Think about it like this. For some of you, this is incredibly disturbing. How are we going to reconcile what the Bible says about hell and a God of love? A few years ago, a prominent pastor published a book that in effect rejected, as it were, the historic sort of orthodox view of hell. Instead, he has opted for a position that abandons, in my opinion, the best reading of the Bible for one that is softer and says basically that everybody, no matter what, will ultimately be saved. So hell, for you mathematicians, will be a null set that nobody will be there because it has been so hard to swallow. But let's take a look at this. The point is, is that often what happens is, is that one aspect of God's character, His love, gets highlighted above the rest. So therefore we say, God is a God of love. The God of the Bible is a God of love, and He certainly is that. But I'm here to tell you that God, the God of the Bible is certainly much more than a God of love. If you have your Bibles or if you have your phone, go with me to the books of Exodus the second book of the Bible, and turn to the 34th chapter. God Himself is telling us what He is like in verses 5 and 6. And listen to what He says. Or 6 and 7, rather. The Lord passed before Him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. We like that part. Slow to anger, we like that part. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, we like that part. Keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, we like that part. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, we like all those parts. But if you read the rest of the verse, it says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty? But 
who visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children. Now listen, some of y'all say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. I'm here to tell you that the Bible says that I'm the Lord and I do not change. And all you got to do is read the the New Testament as well to find out that's exactly what God is about. Here's what I'm saying. Do you have a category for something else besides that God is a God of love? In other words, the God of love that talks, is talked about in the Bible is actually also a God of justice. He is a God who judges. He is a God who punishes sin. And instead of trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think the more appropriate way to handle it is to actually hold both of those things in tension with one another rather than trying to throw one of them away. Does that make sense? Here's... Another way of saying it, and D.A. Carson, this is what I get from him, says it way better than I can. He says that we have a tendency to absolutize one aspect of the way the Bible speaks about God's love. Does the Bible speak of God as a loving God? Loving God? 100% it does. But we must always look at the context to see why God is spoken of as a God of love. He gives five examples, and I want to take a look at them real quick with you because I think this is vital for you all. Humongous. Here we go. First of all, God often, the Bible often speaks of God's providential love. So let's hold out this question. Does God love everybody just the same? Some of y'all are nodding yes. Some of you don't know what to nod. Some of you are going, I don't know. How do I think about this? Well, it depends on what we mean. Think about it like this, the first way. The Bible speaks of God's providential love. In Matthew chapter 6, we hear that God sends sun and rain on the just and the unjust alike. And in that way, we can say that He loves each of us the same. In much the same way, therefore, Jesus tells us, we should love our enemies. In other words, we shouldn't be counting up the people and saying, I'm going to love you here and I'm not going to love you there. In other words... We're supposed to love in that way. And when the Bible speaks of God's love that way, it's talking about it in a broad sense. Secondly, the Bible speaks of God's love in an intra-Trinitarian sense. In other words, how the Son loves the Father. The Father looks at the Son and the Spirit and sees them as beautiful. And so therefore, He loves and enjoys them. You can find that in John chapter 17. Thirdly, God loves in a yearning, inviting, passionate, welcoming way. And God, in other words, He he dares to depict Himself as the betrayed husband, so to speak, in the book of of Hosea. In other words, He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And in that way, that's what most of us think about when we talk about God loves everybody. But listen, in the fourth sense... The Bible speaks of God's love in a particularizing sort of way. All you have to do is look at Deuteronomy 6 and 7 to see that God's love is tied with the doctrine of election. I have loved you, Israel, not because you are more big and beautiful, but because you're the least. You're the worst I have loved you. Moreover, in the fifth sense... God's love is conditioned by our obedience. You go, wait a second, I thought God loved me unconditionally. You have to know what context you're talking about. 
You have to know it. So here's what he's talking about. I love my kids, my little girls. I love them, I think, unconditionally. But I can imagine that when they're your age and they go out and they stay out past curfew in high school a little too late, that I'm, I'm going to be like, hey, girls, what are you doing? Why aren't you home? And you're going to meet the wrath of Papa. Now, in one sense, I love them. But in another sense, my love is conditioned on how they're responding in that moment. And that's the way the Bible speaks about God's love, too. So here's the problem. I just made things 20 times more confusing for you. Because now when I ask you the question, does God love everybody equally? You have to ask me, well, what do you mean, Ryan? In what respect? And most of you just have never thought about the Bible that way. The problem is, is that that's what we have to do to understand the problem of hell. Otherwise, you're going to make mincemeat, mincemeat of the way that you think about God and love in hell. So, what does all this have to do with me? Well, let me put it like this. First of all, when we think about it being something that confronts us, it is troublesome because we think, how in the world, O oh Lord, can I actually find myself in this story? Well, you ought to be able to see yourself as that beggar if you are in Christ that is mentioned in the story. That you ought not have any fear whatsoever what your eternal lot might be. It will be with Jesus from now and forevermore. And you should take great comfort in that. However, it should confront you in this. It should confront you because most of you deep down believe that because God is a God of love and love only, that He would not send anybody or punish anybody in hell. And that's just not what the Bible says. I'll just ask it practically. Do you think that every person who's ever walked on the face of the earth was actually a Christian? No. And the Bible says that those folks who aren't Christian end up in hell. Footnote, I don't like saying this stuff. I wish you were here and I was able to sit up in the, in the seats. But that's what it's getting at. The last point how in the world can something like this comfort us? When I was about 23, no, I was about 25 years old, I had lung surgery. I had a collapsed lung, and I had to have part of my lung taken out. And when the uh, insurance claims began to be filed, uh, every single one of them was denied. Every single one of them meant, therefore, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that language, that the provider of care, the doctor, the hospital, the ambulance, submits a bill to my insurance, and they are paid by the insurance company. But if the insurance company says that was a pre-existing condition like they did in my case, do you know what that means? Those bills come back unpaid to the provider of care, and then they end up on my doorstep saying, you us owe us this much money. Now, the total bill of that surgery and hospital stay was somewhere around thirty-five dollars to $40,000 that I was now looking at, and I had about $2,000 to my name. What did that mean? That mean that I had to hire an attorney, and I basically had to have him write 
a letter to all those providers of care and saying, you can come after them if you want, but all 13 of y'all providers of care can fight for the 2000 bucks if you want. Now, thankfully, that helped, and a lot of the providers of care eventually wrote my care off. Uh, you know, just write it off is what they do. But here's what happened. That insurance company made me so stinking mad because I had done nothing wrong. And I was crying out for justice. I was crying out that somebody might see me and vindicate me and put me in the right. And I actually want to suggest to you that unless you have a concept of God's love for you that is intimately connected to justice, you've never understood the God of the Bible. Think about it like this. I want you to see God's justice as an expression of His love for you. Let's think about it another way. Let's say you have a close friend. For the sake, I'm going to use females. Girls, you all have a close friend that's about to get married to some dude. And you see him one night out, and he is just laying it on thick with another lady. Laying it on thick. And in your heart, what bubbles up is that you want to be able, because you love and care for your friend, you want to act. You want to be just in that moment to say, he is doing this with somebody else. And in that moment, you are leveling judgment and justice in one sense. Why? Because you love your friend. The parent who sees his child run out into the street after a ball does not, as Zach would say, my friend, does not in that moment say, Dear child, in the name of Jesus, please stop running out into the road. There's a car coming. No. They act vehemently. Stop. Right now. Do not go any further, young lady. Because you love that child. You have brought about some sort of action out of justice because of that child. And what the, and what the Scriptures are going to tell us over and over and over again is that justice goes intimately in, in, is intimately connected with love. Do you have a loved one who has been mishandled or abused? Then you know what I'm talking about. Because deep down, you cry out for justice. Somebody make this right. Somebody vindicate my loved one right now. And I'm here to tell you that the Christian narrative is this. That one day, everything will be put to right. That those who have mishandled or abused you or your friends will either be punished for that and you will be vindicated or they will be forgiven in Christ and He will have been punished in their spot. Does that make sense? Why is this such good news for you? I'll close here. Because all of us, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, are that guilty person. And the good news and the hope of the Gospel is that the God of love that you believe in really did bleed and die for you. What? What are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. If you ask most people, 
what's the sort of God that you believe in? They say, oh, I believe in the God of love. And it's often fun to ask them, well, what, what did that love cost your God? What do you mean, cost my God? What does that mean at all? I say, well, love is costly. Love is always costly. Love something and you will be invested and you will be hurt. It can't not happen. You see, when I made the commitment to love Laura for the rest of my life, do you know how much that cost me? Not just financially and the whole nine yards. I'm saying this. I actually said I will say no to every other woman for the rest of my life. And you know what? That's incredibly costly. Because there's a lot of good-looking, lovely, godly women out there that I would love to have an interest in. But because I love Laura and I have committed myself to her, I'm willing to pay that cost. Do you see? What does it cost your God of love to love you? And the answer is, it costs Him everything. He poured Himself out for you because He loves you. Because actually on the cross, when He was pouring Himself out for you, it actually, the history of the church has said that Jesus Christ has actually took hell for you. Separation from God in that moment was hell for Him. And He took it for you. Now, I'm closing. The doctrine of hell is an absolutely incredible thing because it means that Jesus went there for you. And that's an incredible comfort because that's, the, that's what it means that your butt doesn't go there. It's because somebody else did for you. Hallelujah! If you're in Christ, that's the story that is yours. I want to close with prayer. And I just want to remind you, look y'all, this is not something that's easy to talk about. But I'm doing it because I love you. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that there's good news and there is hope like you would not believe in Christ. The one who descended into hell on your behalf. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, thank you for this night. This is something hard to speak about. But help us to see the beauty, as it were, Lord, of uh, what um, Your Scriptures say and how it reminds us that we have a God that is so incredibly just and so incredibly loving in the same moment. Help us now to sing, we pray. And it's in Your name. Amen.